The first pastor I served under was once introduced at a conference uh, in terms kind of like what Murray just did. And so when he got up to speak, he said, brother, we both sinned. You for lying and me for believing it. <laughs> it's true, most of what Murray said, and, and I'm grateful that he didn't say all he could say. Um, and I'm just going to leave it at that, okay? He mentioned that I played hockey, and what he didn't mention was that when I was a young man, that was the focus of my life. I was pretty good. And I literally expected that the Lord would use me as a professional hockey player. All of my life was built around becoming a professional hockey player. And uh, to the point that, for instance, I didn't start skiing till I was about 19 because I didn't want to run the risk of wrecking my legs by having a skiing accident. Well, when I was about 19, by that time, uh, I was in South America working at an orphanage. Uh, I would go down there in the summers. Murray referenced all the stuff in my background. I'm the son of an auto body man. And so uh, in the winter, I would work for my dad in the shop and I would save my money so that I could pay for my trip to South America in the summer where I would work in this orphanage. And while I was working there, uh, I began, I think I could say in retrospect, to sense this call of God to ministry. I laughed, just like Sarah did when told she was going to be pregnant at an old age. Um, and then, about 47 years ago now, the missionaries that I was working with there asked me a question, and I had so little idea of the significance of that question. They said, look, um, our hired hand is left. I'd already been there for two months, so it was late July, August. They said our hired hand quit suddenly, and we really need someone to stay at least for another couple of months till we can hire somebody new. Will you stay? And I thought about that like I'd never thought about anything in my life to that point, because I knew what was dependent upon my answer, not only in terms of the orphanage, but it meant that I could basically take my goalie skates and drive a nail through them and hang them in the wall because my hockey days would be over. Interestingly, at least to me in, in retrospect, I thought, you know, I had a girlfriend back home who I was quite enamored with. I didn't even think about her as I made this decision. My family was back home. All I could think about was this is the end of my dream if I stay. Our lives are shaped by the decisions we make. I, Sharon and I attended a wedding in our church yesterday. My son performed it. And the passage that the couple chose for him to speak on was from Colossians. And, and in doing that, he said, listen, all of these things which are a goal for your marriage, they will only happen as you choose. And you keep choosing this way. That's what decisions do for us. We make a decision. We choose. Our lives are shaped by our decisions. One of my favorite poems is called The Road Less Traveled. And the last verse of that poem says, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. I made a decision 47 years ago and that changed the course of my life. And I keep making decisions, and the course keeps changing, and so do you. 
Our lives are filled with these kinds of things, these proverbs. The journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. To not decide is to decide. And yet, decisions have the power to shape our lives only according to the way we follow through with them. Remember that parable Jesus told about the two brothers? The father says to them, go out and do such and such in the fields. And the first one says what? Yeah, dad, I'll do it. And does he do it? No. And the second one says, forget it, dad. And then he thinks better of it, and he goes out and he actually does what his dad says. And Jesus says, now which one did the will of his father? A number of years ago, I watched a young man be baptized. And you'd have thought he won the lottery as he shared his testimony. And, and he came out of the water, and he's, and he's all over the place. Just a few years later, that guy's got a drug addiction. His life is a mess. Why? Was he not serious when he came out of the water? He was absolutely serious. But he made one decision, and then he made a bunch of other decisions that took him away from that one decision. The text I've been given today by Renus is about making a decision and about the implications of that decision relative to how we follow through. If you've got a Bible, electronic or otherwise, turn to John chapter 3, and I'm going to keep referring to that. I don't have time to literally put this text on the screen for you, but I'll just trust that you'll follow, and, and for those of you that don't have a Bible, I'll try to keep you clued in. This decision, this business of making decision and following through with the decisions we make, I would submit to you this morning is the hardest thing that we ever do. Because you never run out of time to do it. So let's look at the last part of John chapter 3 and let it inform and challenge our living. To begin with, John gives us a non-synoptic update. Now, I don't know what you know about the Bible, and I'm going to assume that at least some of you don't know anything. So let me just talk for a second. We have four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of the four, John is the most unique. The other three basically tell the same story, not necessarily to the same degree, but they all sort of follow the same plot line. They are what we call synoptic gospels. Synoptic means to see the same as. John is a different kind of guy. He gives us information that we don't have anywhere else. In fact, when you think of the the last days of Jesus, the last night before he's crucified, we know all of that because John writes about it in detail that the other three gospel writers don't write about. Why does that matter? Because this first paragraph, I'm starting at John chapter 3, verse 22. Renus gave me the tough part of the chapter to preach on this morning. This, this first paragraph um, tells us something that nobody else tells us. If you read any of the other gospels, you would assume that there was John the baptizer, and, and he finished what he was doing, and then there was Jesus, until you read this gospel. And what does it say? After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he spent some time there with them and baptized. Only John tells us this. Only John tells us that while the Baptist was baptizing, so was Jesus. And from the context, we're going to find out that at least for some of the disciples of John, the Baptist, this was a bit of a conflict. Most modern commentators think that this paragraph from 22 to 24 refers to material that only John knew. It's not, it wasn't known by the synoptists when they wrote their gospels. 
again, I'm not going to bore you with all this technical detail, but notice this phrase. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was abundant there, and people were coming and being baptized. We have no idea where that place is. Archaeologists haven't been able to unearth it yet. Several possibilities exist. The point that's most important and what makes it most plausible is this idea that there was abundant water there. Listen, if you're going to be a baptizer, you need water. The baptizing being talked about here is not sprinkling and it's not throwing water at people. It's immersing people. So you need enough water. Our church uh, every year rents the Christian Service Brigade camp called Teepee Pool, which some of you may know about. It's west of Sundry. The James River literally curls around the camp. And before the flood in 2013, there was a lot of water in that river. In fact, I baptized my two sons there. I, Murray and Ellen might even have been there for that. Um, the water wasn't, you know, this deep. It was maybe chest deep, and it was enough to baptize. Well, we're going out there again this summer, and I can promise you that there will be no baptisms done unless we have to literally lay people down because the flood changed the course of the river. And so John tells us that John the baptizer was baptizing where there was enough water to baptize. The key point here, though, is that this place is likely north of Jerusalem. Now, John the Baptist is a key figure in this text, all the way through, directly and indirectly. And the first thing that John, the gospel writer, and from now on I'm going to refer to the Baptist as the Baptist so we don't get confused because there's two Johns. John, the gospel writer, wants us to see what the Baptist did. The Baptist had been baptizing around Jerusalem. But now, because Jesus starts baptizing... The Baptist goes north so as to not create competition. Just think about that. He's probably one of the most profound figures in his area at that time, and yet when Jesus steps out, he steps away. It's interesting, aware of his reader's historical understanding, likely John, the gospel writer, acknowledges that the Baptist hasn't been imprisoned yet. Interestingly, though, as apart from the other Gospels, the synoptics, John never tells us any more about that. He never mentions the imprisonment of John the Baptist. So that's that first paragraph. The second one, starting at verse 25, seems to imply that purification is not just a ritual. If you're reading the NIV... Um, it will say something like, now an argument arose between John's disciples and a Jew. The NIV actually probably over-translates that word argument. It, it really just means um, a lively exchange of words, literally. And so if you have the New American Standard Bible or you're looking at that on your iPad or whatever, uh, it will say discussion. So will the New Revised Standard Version. The main problem, though, as you look at this text is, what does verse 25 have to do with the remainder of the paragraph? Go ahead, read it. It doesn't seem to follow very much. So what some commentators do is they, they present the possibility that the, the, the scribes who translated this or, or transcribed it made a mistake. See, that word Jew could be also Jews, but they argue that what should have been there was disciples of Jesus, which is not that far removed linguistically from the word Jew or Jews. <laughs> 
People write whole books about this stuff. But in fact, there's no textual evidence anywhere for that theory. Another group of commentators suggest that, that what John is doing here is alluding to other situations in the other Gospels where disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they ask him, you know, like, what's going on? And, and so John maybe wants us to think this is another situation like that. Frankly, there's no ser- serious or clear, satisfying answers based on the text. We just have to accept that. The real issue addressed here, though, is the increase of Jesus' followers apparently at the expense of John the Baptist's followers. Remember, the Baptist has moved north, but his followers, who really thought that they'd hitched their wagon to the right star, are finding out that things are kind of falling apart. Maybe it's like most of our churches since COVID. I don't know of a single pastor that I work with who hasn't said to me, you know, we haven't seen some people in two years and we may never see them again. However you feel about that, that might be the way John the Baptist's disciples felt as they dealt with this issue. I need to cherry pick some words here because of time. So uh, this discussion arises. uh, They come to John, that is, the Baptist followers come to him and say, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan to whom you testified, here he is baptizing and everybody's going to him. John says, no one can receive anything except what has been given to him from heaven. Now, we read that and we read heaven. But if you were Jewish, you'd know that John was, the Baptist was not referring to heaven as a general place. He was referring to God. But because the Jews had, had held the name of God as so sacred, they often would find ways to not say the name of God out of respect. And so they would use the word heaven, for example. And so John the Baptist is saying here, no one can receive anything that has been given to him from God, except that which has been given to him from God. And then he, he reiterates, well, sorry, let me back up. Then he reminds them that he said to them this same thing all along. Number one, from the very beginning of his ministry, he said, I am not the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's to come, the one whom everybody's expecting. That's not me. And it will never be me. Let's just be clear about that. He says, I'm the one sent ahead of that one. And then he uses this really interesting illustration. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, i.e., who I am, stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. We don't know from any of the Gospels how John was, in a sense, called to ministry. From Luke's Gospel, we know that apparently that was there from birth. In fact, Luke tells us that wonderful story about when Mary came to visit Elizabeth, John leapt in Elizabeth's womb, recognizing the the one he was to lead into the world. But that's all we know. We don't know what his call looked like. Was it a decision like I had to make in Columbia? We don't know. What we do know is that John made that decision to be who God called him to be, and he followed through on it, and John, the gospel writer, keeps showing us that. Look, guys, I'm not the Messiah. It's not a big deal for me that Jesus is now baptizing more than we are. Why? Because my job is to point to him. And so he uses this illustration. 
in the area of Judea, a wedding was quite a big deal. And it, was, it involved this person who was the friend of the, of the bridegroom, the shoshban in Hebrew. Um, the friend of the bridegroom had two jobs. Well, one larger job. He was kind of like a wedding planner. But the second job was he brought the bride to the groom, and the, and the party started, and then he and another person followed the bride and the groom when they left the wedding party to go to their home, the, the groom's home, and to um, consummate their marriage physically. It was a big deal in Judaistic culture that a woman marrying a man be a virgin. And it was a big deal that that could be proven. If you read your, your Bible, you'll find this issue comes up a number of times. In, in the Old Testament, there's actually a whole process about what to do if it's discovered that a bride isn't a virgin on her wedding day. So, th this is almost gross for us now. Like This seems so intrusive, but this was their culture. So, the friend of the bridegroom and this other person would go and they would wait outside the bridegroom's house while the bridegroom and the bride consummated their marriage, and when the bridegroom knew that he had married a virgin, he would call out. And that's when the friend of the bridegroom was off duty. Because now he could say, I heard the cry, wonderful, everything is as it should be, I'm out of here. That's what John the Baptist is referring to here. And John the Gospel writer wants us to see that John the Baptist is saying to his disciples, listen guys, everything as it should be. And then this next verse, I need to decrease because he must increase. I need to fade out of the picture like the, the, the friend of the bridegroom so that the marriage can continue unobstructed. The Baptist sense of mission was always one of diminishing so that the focus could be on Jesus. There needs to be more of Jesus and less of me. And so then the gospel writer concludes this passage with an editorial comment about consequences relative to decisions. This passage, this last from verse, uh, what is it, 26, or th sorry, 31 to 36, is very much like earlier in the chapter, John, 7, or John, 6, John 3, 16 to 21. G John, the gospel writer, has told us the story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, and then that part that we love so much, for God so loved the world, that's all John, the gospel writer, give us, giving us an editorial summary of this encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Now he's doing the same thing here after this other event. The first thing that John affirms here is the supremacy of Jesus. He's not of the earth, and therefore he's superior. And again, there's this God reference. Okay? One who comes from above is above all. The one who's of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. The one who comes from heaven, he's repeated it now, is above all. In other words, pay attention. This person is important. Second thing, he reiterates that the testimony of Jesus is generally not accepted. This one who is above all testifies to what he's seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. Third, 
Those who do accept Jesus' testimony certify. The word literally means in Greek to set a seal. There are three reasons that someone in those days would set a seal. The first one was to secure something. So I'm going to fold my envelope and I'm going to put a seal over it so that they didn't have envelopes, I know that. But I, I don't want this coming open. The second reason was to conceal something. Again, same idea. I wrap something up and I make sure it doesn't come unwrapped. The third reason you would put a seal on something is to authenticate something. And that's the term in which John, the gospel writer, is using it here. Whoever has accepted his testimony has certified, that is, set a seal that this God is true. What does it mean? It means that if I accept this testimony, I am saying what God says is true, and I'm going to follow it. I'm going to let it inform my life. And then John says, he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And once again, another difficulty, thank you very much, Renus, for giving me this passage. That meaning is ambiguous. It could mean that God, the Father, has given the Spirit without measure to the Son. It could also imply that the Son who has the Spirit can give it to the disciples, his disciples. We don't know. And it could be both. In fact, it probably is both in my estimation. Interestingly, though, again, if a Jew heard this, this, the Spirit referred to the Spirit of prophecy. And so those Old Testament prophets that were famous to them had been moved by the Spirit to say what they said. But every Jew understood that none of them had the Spirit without measure. They had a dose of the Spirit, if you like. But John is saying, no, this guy, Jesus, has the Spirit without measure. And then he says, the Father loves the Son. He's committed all things to Him. And then fourth, he says, notice, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The word believes is in an aorist tense. It means an action that happens once with ongoing consequences. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And then look, look at the last part of the phrase. We, this is very unpopular in our culture. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. Notice it doesn't say whoever does not believe the Son. It says whoever disobeys the Son. It's disobeying, not failing to believe that leads to God's wrath. Now, lest we mess this up and, and whatever, do, let me ask you this. If you think about someone who's going to set your life or the world right, okay, you following me? Don't you want that person to care about right and wrong? In other words, if you want something set right, doesn't that imply there's a wrong? And if there's a wrong and the wrong by definition is not good, doesn't it, need to be, doesn't it need to be dealt with so that there can be a right? Let me be even more practical. Um, my middle child, a son, Joel, uh, was always an experiential learner. He's very kinesthetic. 
guaranteed, I could say to Joel, son, don't touch the hot burner. Yeah, see, you've had a son like that, haven't you, or a daughter? Almost guaranteed, he's going to try, or at least he's going to get his hand close, because he has to know. And what will happen? I could say to Joel, listen, son, if you touch touch the hot burner, it's going to hurt, and you're going to regret it. I could just as easily say, using John's words, son, if you touch the hot burner, you will experience the wrath of the burner. That's what John is implying here. Look, you get to make a choice. If you choose not Jesus, there is an accompanying wrath with that, a consequence. And it's serious. Leon Morris, a commentator, writes this. The remedy is not to abandon the conception of wrath, but to think it through more carefully. It stands for the settled and active opposition of God's holy nature to everything that is evil. Do we not want that? All great stories end with things being set right. This is the greatest story. And if things are going to be set right, it implies that there are things that are wrong. We're all relatively smart people. We know that there are things that are wrong. And we also know that no matter how hard we try to set them right, we screw it up. But God doesn't, and that's part of our hope. So there's the passage. So what? I like asking that question when I study the Bible. So what? What does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with me and my decisions? I started by telling you how important decisions were. What I want you to see from this passage is that John, the gospel writer, shows us how the Baptist kept making decisions in the line with the first one he made. I will be who God has made me to be, which is not the Messiah, but is the one who points to the Messiah. And no matter what happens, I will keep that focus. And he does, literally to his death. So what is the implication for us? Well, a decision regarding Jesus shapes your life, whatever you choose. C.S. Lewis famously said, there are only three options when you think about Jesus. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the son of God. Choose. You have to choose. To not choose is to choose. Do you have to choose today? What, what if I'm here, Doug, and I'm, I'm just, this is new to me, I'm just investigating it. Keep investigating, that's okay. Nobody's forcing you to make a decision. What I'm saying to you is eventually you will make a decision one way or the other, and it will affect your life forever. That's what our scriptures tell us. Well, what if I have made that decision to yield to Jesus, to accept Jesus as my Lord, as my Savior? I'm not sure if this is good news. I know the gospel's supposed to be good news, but I can tell you this. If you make that decision, it's not a one-time deal. You're going to make that decision every day. Sometimes you're going to make it a hundred times in a day. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean when it looks like I'm being pushed out of the picture or sliding out of the picture, and that needs to be okay because Jesus is still being exalted? 
My son said to this couple yesterday, look, this passage you chose that speaks about an ideal marriage, it's possible, but it's not possible without you choosing this way every day. Scripture says to us that we can have this incredible, abundant life by following Jesus. But it doesn't come down from heaven like some gift that all you have to do is unwrap it. It comes down from heaven in the form of the choices we make day after day after day. And that's it. So what? The what is pretty simple. What are you choosing? What are you choosing with respect to Jesus? and the way he would live his life if he were living through you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And they're going to play a song. And I would just like you to reflect. I'm going to repeat those. I'm going to give you two questions, okay? Pretty much following from what I've said. They're going to sing or play How Deep the Father's Love. And I think it's really important that we set this in that context. This is not some abstract scientific fact or historical fact. This is a real person who lived in real time and space and who said, come and follow me. And if you follow me, you will find an abundant life. And if you don't, the options become pretty obvious, a not abundant life. But be really clear, the one who invites you to this decision, the one who invites you to keep deciding is one who loves you more than you can even love yourself. He only wants what's best for you. It's Father's Day. Maybe I can finish with a Father's Day story. Uh, When my kids were teenagers, um, we had discussions around the dinner table at times because our rules were too harsh, blah, 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 you know. And on this one particular evening, uh, I got mad. I, I, was just, I was just up to here with my kids' objections to whatever, in my mind, minuscule rule they were objecting to. And I said to them, like, do you guys think that my job in life is to make your life miserable? Is that what you think of me? And all of their heads kind of went down, no doubt. I'm sure they did think that sometimes. I'm sure that actually led to the discussion. But it wasn't true. We told our kids as they turned teenagers, listen, these next few years are going to be chaotic. But, but understand that we want to release you as mature adults into the world, and we're going to give you responsibility that you earn. Because we love you. Do you get that? Well, of course they didn't get it. And I wonder how much we get how much the Father loves us. But whether we get it or not, it's true. God loves you. He will never love you more. He cannot love you less. That's the one who's inviting you to consider this decision. So take a moment as these folks play and sing and think about these two questions. What do you think about Jesus? And secondly, what decisions do you need to follow through on this week if you're following Jesus? Let's pray. Please, Lord, take your word and make it more than I could ever make it in our lives. Help it to be good seed that bears a harvest. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So take a moment and think about it.